There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Soon after Peng Shuai, a Chinese tennis star, made accusations of sexual assault against a senior politician, she disappeared. Her reappearance has done little to calm concerns about her safety and nothing to address her allegations. And like other Gulf states, the United Arab Emirates is trying to diversify its economy with a burst of cultural institutions as part of the push. Next up is a Guggenheim Museum in Abu Dhabi, one with a particular view on modern art. First up, though. This was the sound of Austria's capital, Vienna, on Saturday. But this... This was Vienna yesterday. Austria is back under lockdown with a COVID caseload at an all-time high. On Friday, the country became the first EU state to announce a vaccine mandate. It'll come into effect in February. The Delta wave has come late to Europe, and it's forcing governments to make choices that the public aren't happy about. Belgium is requiring masks and at-home working, plans opposed by tens of thousands of protesters in Brussels on Sunday. The Netherlands is under three weeks of restrictions, and defiant rioters have set fires and battled police night after night. No policy looks sufficient to keep both the pandemic and the people under control. But more and more of the EU seems to be coming to the same conclusion that Austria has. It's not an easy decision to take, and it it will be very unpopular, and certainly in some parts of Europe. Wendelin von Bredo writes about Europe for The Economist and is based in Berlin. On the one hand, you do want to get people to vaccinate more, but by imposing more restriction and possibly a mandate, you're also making them angrier, you know, and more resistant. Let's wind back a bit. How did it come to this? Why are European countries becoming overwhelmed by outbreaks even now after vaccines have become widely available? So what happened? Europe worked together to procure the vaccine and to distribute it. But then laws and regulations in each European countries are different and each country sort of then managed the COVID pandemic on its own. And so as a result, you see now three very quite different scenarios in, in Europe. You have Eastern Europe, where the vaccination rates is really quite low. The situation is really almost desperate and hospitals are overflowing at the moment. Then there is the Central European story, so that's Germany, Austria, the Benelux countries that are struggling at the moment because the vaccination rate is higher than in Eastern Europe, but still not high enough. 
And then uh, the third block is the Southern European states. So that's um, Spain, Portugal, and Italy. And they had a devastating third wave, but they are now actually doing better because vaccination rates really are quite high. I mentioned Portugal, but also in Spain and in Italy. So um, you can't really talk about Europe in a very broad sense at the moment because it is a different picture depending on whether you are in the south, in the middle or in the east. But the differentiator there in largest part is the, the vaccination rate. Uh, is what Austria has done a mandate for, for all citizens the ultimate way forward here, do you think? Well, Jason, that's the big question. You know, the Austrian chancellor said, you know, we thought we could just get people to vaccinate. We thought we would get away without the mandatory vaccine. But we have now decided we cannot. The Impfquote nachhaltig zu erhöhen is our einziger Weg in Germany, for months and months, um, mandatory vaccination was a taboo topic here. But now Germans are looking across the border to Austria and thinking, well, maybe that's what we'll end up with. And two state premiers, two quite prominent state premiers, the state premier of Bavaria and the one of Schleswig-Holstein have already come out in favor of mandatory vaccination, as has, for instance, the head of the Tourism Association, in other countries, for instance, in, ne in the Netherlands, we are not there yet. The Dutch are deeply upset about the re-imposition of COVID restrictions. And I think the government fears if they now start to talk about mandatory vaccination, it, it would cause a nationwide riot. But I think more and more countries, and not only Germany, will make it certainly mandatory for certain professions, which is already the case in some European countries, but probably for the entire nation, for whoever is eligible for vaccination. But again, the question here is how much public appetite there is for either the mandate or for different lockdown measures that, that are, are ultimately forcibly imposed. What does the public want least here? Um, well, Jason, that's a very good question because in a way the public doesn't want either. They don't really want more restriction or the reimposition of the restriction and they don't really want the mandate either. But it has changed. A few months ago, only 30% of the population uh, in Germany, in surveys at least, um, was in favour of mandatory vaccination. But there was a very recent one that was just done a few days ago. And by now, the support for vaccination is at 72%. So it's really quite high. So there's a strong push by the public. They've had enough. They don't want another winter of severe you know, lockdowns and restrictions and not seeing your relatives at Christmas. And of course, politicians are now responding that. That's why it's now very much a, a matter of public debate in Germany. It's not the same in all European countries, but I, I assume we will get there just as even quite high vaccination rates, you know, let's say around 70% are double vaxxed, still doesn't seem to be enough to contain it. And it sounds as if no matter what, there will still be some protests, some disquiet, either because of lockdowns, because of mandates. It's all still a protest mood. Yes. And I think in America, you have a similar situation. I mean, it's the polarization has really increased. You know, the anti-vaxxers have become more radical. And in Austria, on Saturday, 40,000 anti-vaxxers took to the streets of Vienna. And the mood was very upset, aggressive, angry. There were followers of far-right parties. You know, the far-right party, the FBO, is strong in Austria. And some went even as far as holding placards that compared 
Alexander Schallenberg, the Austrian Chancellor, to Joseph Mengele, the sadistic SS physician at Auschwitz at the concentration camp. So it's it's a very angry and aggressive and actually dangerous mood. So that's why politicians will have to tread very carefully if they really want to introduce a vaccine mandate. Madeline, thank you very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Jason. Every day you get to hear from us, but we'd also like to hear from you. What do you like about the intelligence? What could we be doing better? Here's your chance to weigh in. We're running a survey that you can find at economist.com slash intelligence survey. Just click the link that's in the notes for today's show. Thanks. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. On Sunday, a video emerged on social media showing the Chinese tennis player Peng Shuai at a tournament in Beijing. She was seen being introduced to the crowd and signing tennis balls for children. There have been growing concerns for the star after she made claims earlier this month of sexual abuse against the former vice premier Zhang Gaoli. In a 1,600-word post, she wrote, even if it's just striking a stone with a pebble or a moth attacking a flame and courting self-destruction, I will tell the truth about you. Sunday's video came on the same day as what appeared to be further evidence all was well with Ms. Peng, a private video call with the president of the International Olympic Committee. And yet doubts about her safety remain. Peng Shuai is a very famous athlete in China. She is a three-times Olympian. She was the only Chinese person to come top of a Grand Slam tennis tournament. She won uh, the doubles at Wimbledon and then the French Open. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. And she was sort of talent-spotted uh, as a very young child and then, as so often happens, went into the kind of fairly brutal training system. And she caused a bit of a ruction because uh, she was one of a few star athletes that broke against the state system that took all of their earnings, uh, demanded to kind of be a free agent, and because she was so successful, was allowed to do that. And until very recently, she was seen as a kind of, as a role model, as a, a kind of famous good person who had won medals and championships for China. And can you just recap what we know has happened to her so far? Well, on November the 2nd, uh, Peng Shuai posted a, a long, very emotional, but quite powerful uh, statement to her own personal Weibo account. It's a bit like uh, the Chinese version of Twitter. She has about half a million followers. And this account was a bombshell, and it was taken down by state censors within about 20, 30 minutes. Uh, and it accused uh, the former vice premier of China, also a former member of the Standing Committee of the Politburo, so one of the most powerful men in China, Zhang Gaoli, of having had a sexual affair which had involved coerced sex and some fairly kind of abusive uh, kind of relations, an adulterous affair. Having been censored, uh, she then went completely silent. And this statement went soaring around uh, the Chinese internet on 
uh, screenshots because it was you could find no trace of it. And then the state census just kind of really did their work. And now if you go to a Chinese language search engine here in China and type in Peng Shui, the newest thing that comes up is it's a very old anodyne sports story. So China's sort of fearsome firewall is basically completely destroying or mentioned. And it's very unclear how many Chinese people know that this kind of worldwide firestorm is even going on. And she's no longer silent anyway. She has been seen and heard from since. That's right. So you had this extraordinary kind of tidal wave of extremely famous tennis players and athletes from other sports starting to kind of share these Twitter accounts of, you know, uh, where is Peng Shui? Uh, and then you also had very, very strong statements from the head of the Women's Tennis Association, the WTA. Uh, and he has been really outspoken. You know, we want to make sure that uh, Peng Shui is, first of all, safe. Uh, we have received assurances from the Chinese Tennis Association that she is safe and not in harm's way. But we haven't been able to speak with her directly, and we haven't been able to reflect to her directly um, our concerns. And, and so under that pressure, we suddenly saw uh, the Chinese English language state TV station, CGTN, publish what they said was an email from Peng Shui to Steve Simon, but it did not read like uh, a normal email. And then the most prominent sort of ultra-nationalist tabloid here, uh, the Global Times, the editor-in-chief of that paper started posting, but only in English and only on Twitter, which is a platform that is completely impossible to reach for most Chinese here in China because it's blocked. He started saying these English language things about how my sources tell me that she's fine, uh, my sources tell me that she will start appearing soon in public, and then we had some other state journalists reposting photographs of her surrounded by kind of stuffed animals saying how well she was. And then we had some very odd brief clips of video of Peng Shui and her coach and some other friends at a restaurant in Beijing on Sunday night. But has Miss Peng been heard from herself? The final coup de grace, which again happened on Sunday, was that the International Olympic Committee not the Women's Tennis Association, the IOC's boss and their head of athletics and their head of China was allowed a half-hour video call with Peng Shui and then they released a statement saying that they were delighted to see she was looking fine and relaxed and that she wants her privacy and that's why she's at home. And the IOC statement made a lot of people very upset because the core fact is that the reason everyone's worried about Peng Shui is because she has accused an extremely senior Communist Party official of an abusive sexual relationship. And all previous experience is that women who lodge those kinds of accusations against anyone in authority get into tremendous trouble. And the IOC just simply didn't address that. And so what was really interesting was that the head of the WTA, Steve Simon, issued a statement after these videos started appearing saying, I am very concerned still about her health and safety and that this allegation of sexual assault is being censored. Why do you think that there's such a disparity then the, the way that the WTA has responded to this and the way the IOC seems to be, let's say, less concerned? There's a couple of reasons. I mean, the IOC has a shameful record of, of kowtowing to every dictatorship that it needs to deal with to, to stage Olympics. Um, there's also some very important numbers of money involved. The IOC, you know, represents uh, sponsors who make hundreds of billions of dollars in revenues in China who are ready to have the Beijing Winter Olympics at the beginning of February. The overwhelming concern for the Chinese leadership right now is that they are about to have 
a kind of uh, extravaganza of Chinese pride and prowess to show how grand their Beijing Winter Olympics is and how well they have handled the COVID pandemic. And they do not want anyone to boycott the Olympics on account of Peng Shui. So in order to shut down that external debate about the Olympics, they were willing to push her in front of a camera accompanied by a senior Communist Party official, as she was, to say how relaxed and happy she was to the IOC. And so where does all that leave Peng Shui herself? Uh, doomed, I think. Nothing good will happen to her. I think her very best hope is that if some deal can be done for some reason that gets her out of China. But people who have made accusations uh, to much lower level figures, you know, we had a, a, a Chinese TV producer who accused a well-known uh, sort of presenter of a kind of big patriotic party-backed variety show. He ended up suing her for defamation and winning. Uh, remember that Chinese courts are controlled by the Communist Party. They are not independent. We've seen students in universities who have accused their own professors have been basically punished, shut down, any sort of feminist movement, the Me Too movement, censored, shut down. And this is because the Chinese Communist Party sometimes talks a good game about believing in gender equality and being tremendously kind of, uh, you know, the, the famous Mao phrase about women hold up half the sky. But here's the thing about the Communist Party. They are overwhelmingly interested in the authority of the Communist Party. And so if someone small, like a tennis player, accuses someone big, like a former vice premier, they must be crushed. They must be silenced. The system cannot tolerate people from below challenging the authority of those at the top. And so there is no good outcome to this utterly tragic story. David, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. The opening of the Guggenheim Museum in New York in 1939 was a cultural milestone. New York's uncompromising pursuit of creativity has often given expression to genius. A much visited example is the Guggenheim Museum. It started with businessman Solomon Guggenheim's own Vasily Kandinsky's and Jackson Pollock's. The collection of modern art grew and now sits in a building by Frank Lloyd Wright, an upturned snail's shell at the edge of Central Park. Other Guggenheims were created in America, but also in Mexico and Europe. Now another is to be added in the Middle East, one that has its own story to tell. The Guggenheim in Abu Dhabi is scheduled to open in 2025. It's a hugely ambitious project designed by the American architect Frank Gehry. It has these wonderful jagged towers and palm-fringed walkways. Fiametta Rocco is The Economist's culture correspondent. It takes its inspiration from the wooden sailing dows that ply the waters of the Gulf. Construction started 10 years ago and it's been very, very, very stop-start. It's now started again and we're on the way, but it has not been a straightforward project. How so? Well, there have been protests about workers' conditions in the UAE. There have been other human rights issues. There have been finance-induced delays, partly to do with the financial crisis, partly to do with the drop in the oil price. There have been cancelled contracts. But now, 10 years after they started clearing the site, work has just restarted. And given all of those problems and the costs that presumably come, come with it, why is Abu Dhabi going to, to all this trouble? Well, it's part of a long-term effort to diversify 
Abu Dhabi's economy away from oil and gas to what they call the knowledge economy. That means tourism, it means education, it means culture, especially museums. They are building a special museum island called Sadia just on the edge of Abu Dhabi city where the first museum opened in 2017. That was, of course, the Louvre Abu Dhabi. But it's not just a superficial hunt for tourists that they're looking for. They're looking to change people's perspectives. They want to use the UAE's history as an entrepot, as a meeting point between Europe and Asia to try and tell global stories. The Louvre Abu Dhabi tries to do a global history of humanity starting in prehistoric times through to the 20th century. And the Guggenheim will be similarly ambitious. It will rewrite the story of modernism from a global perspective. And how does the collection do that? Well, they've acquired now about 600 artworks from 60 countries, from artists such as Ai Weiwei and Huang Yongping, to the Latin American neo-concrete movement, to Iranian artists, North African artists. And they are fitting together and writing a global story of connections and inspiration. Parviz Tanavoli, for example, an Iranian artist, he creates instantly recognizable metal sculptures using three letters from the word hish, which is Farsi for nothing, inspired by Alexander Calder, by Barbara Hepworth, as well as by the metal locks that are attached to Iranian drinking fountains. Very, very, very particular work, drawing on all sorts of international influences. So do you think that Guggenheim Abu Dhabi's big ambitions will be met? Do you think the UAE more generally will succeed in its aims of being a a global art capital? Well, it's very interesting. You know, if you take the Louvre Abu Dhabi as an example, an early example, it opened in 2017 and it has drawn visitors from all over the world. Almost 11.5 million people visited Abu Dhabi in 2019, twice the number of 2016, the year before the Louvre opened. So I feel confident that people who are interested in the art of our times and how our world made it will find themselves drawn to this place and to the new story that it has to tell. Fiametta, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The links to subscribe and to take our survey are in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.